Welcome to another episode of Glass Onion Minute. I am your host for the week, Austin Pryor, and with me is my wonderful guest, Luke Allen. Uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm still here talking about the film. You're still here talking today about Minute 23 of Glass Onion. Minute 23 starts at 0 hours, 22 minutes, 0 seconds and goes all the way up to... Zero hours, 22 minutes, 59 seconds, and 24 frames. Minute 23 starts with Miles revealing what he's going to give us a proper tour of. Of the glass onion. <gasps> oh, yes, here we go. Oh, my God, the glass onion, like our yes. bar. Right. <laughs> Should we um, get all bags? Um... It's the titular glass onion. Then we're treated to a full view of the structure and Miles regaling us with his thoughts on what the glass onion does and does not represent. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. It's like an actual huge glass onion. Yep. It's past, present, and future. It's, it's what came before, where I am now, what I'll leave to the world. Ignore me. It's, I, this is the full reclamation of everything I've achieved up to now. So It ends as he is just starting to answer Lionel's question about how many staff the place requires. What kind of staff does it take to run a place like this? Normally, like... Uh, yeah, so so, any observations about this particular minute? Um, well, the first thing that stood out to me, like, is... It's a good chance to talk about the actual title and the concept of Glass Onion. Yeah. Um, because, like, I have to admit, I had to Google what does Glass Onion actually, like, mean? Because, like, I'm assuming it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, given that there was a Beatles song, you know, and given that I think there's a line that they've... That she says, she's like, oh, you meant an actual glass onion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just not aware of what it is. So I've, I've, I googled it and I found out it was a British colloquialism uh, making reference to a monocle as if to symbolise the detective. Like, hang on, this is, yeah, that, yeah so that's in, re- in regards to the film. I thought it was in regards to the song, but still, yeah, reference to a monocle uh, to symbolise the detective-like prowess of their fans, it says. Um in the context of this film, though, so like, what what is it in the context of? Yeah, like, yeah, no, society? I think, um, like, so the, the first time I ever heard of it, Glass Onion, was the um, the what you call the film it was the song. Sorry, so the first time I ever heard of it, Glass Onion, was just the song, and I always assumed that like a lot of those Beatles songs and like a lot of the other Beatles songs referenced by those lyrics, that it was just a, um, just a silly kind of meaningless phrase. Well, because they loved taking the mick out of those that were analysing their songs and just like yes. making them nonsense, yeah. And, and and that song specifically has the line, you know, here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. Um and so it's like it's specifically baiting people by giving them clues and you know and 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 so it's like yeah absolutely taking the mick um but then when i looked it up you know before this i think you know there are ornaments that are glass onions but i can't see any like evidence that that existed as a thing before the song so i do tend to think that it's just um that it's just a glass onion just a just a mad thing you know just a a weird uh phrase but the monocle thing does that was that that was something that people said about the movie 
Um, yeah, and then I'm also taking a deeper look, and it's on Urban Dictionary as well, you know, the, the trusted yeah, site. Yeah, the trusted. Um, so yeah. Uh, um, it said, uh, originating from the Beatles song Glass Onion, um, it's believed to mean a glass-lidded coffin uh, by the followers of the Paul is Dead conspiracy. Oh, of uh, course. But the real re- meaning of the song uh, is that people were overanalyzing the Beatles' lyrics, and the glass onion is something that would layer, uh, layer after peeled away, only to realize it was transparent all along. Okay. Um, so it's, yeah, the concept of overanalysis, yes. I'm guessing. Yeah. Which I love that they then overanalyzed by saying that it was a. Plus, it's like, the yeah, they set, they set the perfect <laughs> trap that it would end up being. You know, that song and then a movie taking that title and then end up on a Movies by Minute podcast and Movies by Minute's job is to overanalyze every single yes. thing in every single minute yes. of every single film. Um, so it's kind of perfect. But um, but yeah, so the Glass Onion structure itself is quite cool and quite impressive looking. And I like the design, the way it's kind of cut into. Um, but it does look a bit fake, a bit CG to me. And there is some there is some ropey CG in this film, which I'm, you know, I accept. It's part of the, you know, it's kind of how movies are made nowadays and it's not the biggest budget film in the world and stuff. There's some there's some really egregious CG later on in the film. This is fine. This is definitely within the means within the the realm of of acceptability but i just i wish it looked at just a bit more real um because we see that like the boston dynamics robot walks by during during this scene and um i think that looks great and i just it, it kind of didn't even occur to me that it was cg when i was originally watching um but i'm sure it is you know that it would be um but obviously a robot is a reasonably easy thing to make um uh, but a huge glass structure like this is like, yeah, glass kind of looks pretty good in CG, but it does, glass behaves so, glass distorts light and does all these weird things. And you have to kind of model all of the imperfections if you want to make it really believable. And I don't think it managed that because it's like this thing couldn't be as perfect and gleaming as in real life as as it is shown here and i think even if it was a, just a little bit smudged off it would still look incredibly you know incredibly impressive but it would be um it would just look like it was really sitting there you know and um but but when i was thinking about cgi and why i don't mind the like substandard cgi in this movie as much as others i think it was like it was it was used really only where it was needed to be and there was another murder mystery that we watched myself and my wife watched a few months ago which was um uh, death on the nile the agatha christie adaptation by kenneth branagh and um that is just wall-to-wall cg landscapes and cg boats and cg and it's just it's just horrible so much of the appeal of a movie like that is the glamorous locations and the like you know it's it's the reason we watch movies about rich people is you know they get to go to all these amazing places and have you know you know the reason we call costume dramas costume dramas instead of period dramas a lot of times we're focused so much in the costumes and it's like the there was great costumes in this movie but like it's 
<clears throat> it's the whole production design. It's meant to be the costumes and the sets and the backgrounds and the amazing sunsets and nature shots and the, you know, boats going down the river kind of shots. And like, <clears throat> and so much of that was achieved in CGI in this, in, in the Death on the Nile, that it was just like, what's the point? It's like, you're meant to be taking me to the exotic location. You're meant to be taking me to the Nile, you know? And, um, it's if it was like even if it was top notch cgi if you can tell then what's the point it's like you're not taking me there <laughs> you know yeah um, no, absolutely you're reminding us of of the fact that it's a constructed article rather yeah. than the, try and take you on the journey and i think and, yeah, and the, but the specifics of the genre as well that like if if yeah. the if the kind of setting was only incidental to the genre, if it wasn't like, you know, like like when when big like murder mystery kind of mini series would be made, you know, like that they would be promoted like when I was growing up, you know, eighties and nineties, it'd all be like filmed on location in such and such, you know. In other words, we had a budget for this one. Pay attention. We're gonna we're we're gonna show you the world, and now yes. it's like showing us the world is kind of have been done so much and we're so used to the most stunning amazing scenery that our that our ancestors would have like bitten your arm off for one look at in 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 a grainy photo you know um but that now is just so commonplace that i think some people are just like devaluing it and then just just doing it all in cgi so i just want to say the scenery photography in this movie is beautiful and they never cheap out on that and they never cg it you know yeah i think that's important like it's it does sometimes feel like you have the degree of cg kind of like this sort of thing where they want you to say that's good cg and yeah that's what their focus is yeah but and i never yeah, want to say that i only ever want to say no that's that if, real thing <laughs> like whether yeah, it's you, i think you can oh, just to fool about me. you know this this might be a really poor point, but you, know, you could probably just about get away with it in like a big full blown like sci fi thing. Like if it were like I don't know, like a episode of Doctor Who or like a yeah. Star Wars movie or something, you're expecting CG. So when something looks good, you'll go, "That's good CG." But when it's something which, as a whole, is is fairly grounded, yeah, it's it's just distracting. Yeah, and, and especially do with Death on the Nile, the where the story is set before the existence of CG. It, yes. It's just like it 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 feels doubly incongruous, uh, because it's just it's just like yeah this this is not working yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, but you know it's fairly minor on my criticisms of this film. Uh, oh but, yeah, uh, like there's yeah, only there's a couple uh, of shots in this film that I give out about, yeah. and none of them have have come up yet. But uh, the, the the glass onion itself is just like oh, I wish it was just that little bit more real, so I wouldn't be distracted. But what can you do? Yeah, it is. It is. It is what it is. But yeah, I will continue to say these minutes are, are good minutes. I'm I'm a fan of these minutes. Yeah, the movie is still yeah, still like working the, for you here. I like the glass onion as a setting and as sort of like it's a very it's visually distinct enough that like you know do you remember the um, uh, framed thing that people was going around of for a while where if you that site where you see like a frame of a film and you've got to try and guess the film oh yeah I like wordle like, wordle for films yeah, yeah i remember it yes so i feel like 
you could give many a frame from this film and you'd get it right away. Like yes. It's quite a visually distinct setting. And mm. that's good because it will it will stick in your mind. Steve Yedlin is uh the um is the director of photography for this and um I'm not sure every but I'm about to check. Yeah, he's done other stuff in between every uh uh Ryan Johnson film and the next. Oh, and he's been working since like back in nineteen ninety six, so he's kind of older than um than Ryan Johnson and he's been working for a long time. So And then the production design as well is Rick um Helm Ricks. Uh, I might be pronouncing that wrong. But yeah, similarly, just I feel like if I'm, you know, acknowledging the, the visually distinct style, then the DP and the production designer yeah. play a very large part in that for this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they did a good job. They did a good job. It just went on a bit. Um, but, gotcha, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, so the Steve Yedlin did work on Brick and the Brothers Bloom and uh, Looper and... Yeah, so he's done. He's done all of them. He is the only director of photography that uh, uh, Ryan Johnson has worked with for the silver screen. But of course, Ryan Johnson has worked on on TV as well, where you just work with the the series, uh, you know, or whatever director of photography you're assigned, you know. But uh, but yeah, there you go. So Steve Yedlin is the guy. But uh, yeah, so what we're seeing here now is. Um, you know, Miles is kind of hitting his stride. And even though he's obviously been thrown off by a couple of things here, he's like determined to get this a bit like me getting this uh, podcast back on the rails. And uh, <laughs> so he's just so so the first thing kind of birdie says is glass onion like I like our bar. Oh, I love that. And it's like such a line for the audience i even thought it was adr the first time like it was added in afterwards um first time i heard it but uh it is in the script so you know if it was whether it was adr or not it was planned to be said but of course it's perfect uh revelation it's perfect exposition because uh birdie has been well established as a character who just constantly states the obvious and she's already been like called out for it and slagged for it a few times and um and then of course when she gets to the scene she's like oh it's an actual giant glass onion and the response is yup (laughs) so yeah so her her character trace of constantly stating the obvious and just being kind of living id where she just like you know whatever thoughts are there they just come out you know um her character trait is like very useful for uh the movie in terms of like imparting information to us and uh of course uh, it's a lot of humor from it as well you know but um yeah so it's also the moment where we see uh blanc and um andy hanging back and talking about this rich people stuff is weird. And um, Blanc is saying, uh, uh, yo, thank you. I have occasionally put on the dog in my life, but this is stretching my stride-taking abilities. Someone will get them forward, so okay. okay. This rich people shit is weird. Well, thank you. I, you know, I have occasionally put on the dog in my life, but this, this, this is stretching my stride-taking abilities. You're doing great. I'm Andy. 
That is very genial of you. I'm Ben Wall. You got a flat tire there. Thank you. Now, have you ever heard the expression to put on the dog? I don't think so. Yeah. No, it's one of those where, you know, we kind of, to, to cross over onto the other show that we, we did recently, we were talking about kind of like the way that some people can just say things to a degree that they're just the king, the kings of sort of BSing it and making you think. Oh, yeah, it must making be true you sound like it's a it thing. Confidence. Yeah. Um, and I, I had that with like. Um, Remember, I uh, back when I did GCSE history, I never actually had to sit the actual exam because of pandemics and all. But like, I I remember doing like mock papers and stuff, and the teachers saying that like they had to Google stuff because it sounded right. Um, yeah, I was just guessing historical things, but I kind of convinced it. Which I always thought if I was like, and obviously I never got to find out, but it's like if I was like at the bottom of like two two hundred or like thousand or whatever papers that someone was grading that day. And yeah. it was just like, oh, well, he sounds right. I, they could let me off on some stuff. I genuinely Absolutely. Think. They're, <laughs> so, yeah, they're only human. Yeah. Yeah. Until AI starts uh, correcting papers. But, um, oh, goodness, yeah. but uh, to, sorry, to, so the expression to put on the dog um, is a U.S. informal idiom, and it means to act as if you are more important than you are. Putting on airs and graces, I suppose, is another is a similar or, or delusions of grandeur um well of course yeah delusions of grandeur is about your opinion of yourself whereas put on the dog is about your behavior um so yeah it's not one i've ever heard i will be on the lookout i'll probably hear it everywhere now that i've you know that i've noticed it and looked it up yeah it's it it, it is a very peculiar idiom put on like, the dog yeah i, I can't do, imagine what I the origin love, would be yeah i do love that sort of uh, thing. Yeah, so they so after a little interaction between um, Benoit and um, Andy, um, where they're kind of seeing that they maybe see eye to eye and they're not they're not too happy about the rich people side of things, um, we move on to uh, you know a continuation of um, Miles just giving his his spiel um and he, he you know he is just loving holding court here and he loves that he's the host and they all kind of have to hang around and listen to him you know um so uh yeah so it's my past my present my future what came before me what i'm about to leave to the world and daryl <laughs> daryl walks by again in the background ignore me um and uh yeah so we have our, our second malapropism. Uh, this is the full reclamation of everything I've accomplished up until now. And um, uh, what does he even mean? What would be the right Can word? I just like? say, sorry, in, in your like reference to kind of Daryl being about in the background, do you think because this was a film made in the pandemic, this is just a very kind of genius way and genius setting of not casting loads of extras or picking a location at which you need them and just kind of... Oh, oh we'll just put Daryl there again, and kind of like a sort of yeah. I mean, I think it. I, I think it is. I think the the setting. There's a great kind of alignment going on where the the real world uh, constrictions. Con, what, what's the word? Now I'm doing the malapropisms. Uh, the real world constraints that are placed on filmmaking. Um, which they definitely had to observe in making this film and, and it did affect the movie and they had to kind of work around a lot of stuff but but 
fundamentally you can make this kind of movie because it's a small cast and it doesn't have to go you don't have to have any street scenes where there's loads of extras you don't have to fill the world with people and i think it was already you know what it's a kind of film that that uh it's already the kind of film that uh, ryan johnson had made one of you know what i mean he had already made one of these yeah. benoit blanc mysteries. Yeah, the, the, so the it doesn't feel it doesn't yeah. feel so forced and yet he he tied in the the actual pandemic because he just wanted to have fun with it and he wanted to kind of use it to to you know justify some of the the setting and some of the constraints uh but i I just think it was brilliantly done um because he he could have made this film without the pandemic stuff it it does end up tying into the plot in a few ways it's not it's not like tacked on that it's not integrated but you could you know you could imagine a version of this film that wouldn't be so substantially different uh, that just didn't acknowledge the No, well the I didn't I didn't feel like oh glass onion that's the one set at the pandemic. Yeah. Like that's not that's not the the pivotal part. No. But yeah, I think you know obviously as a writer director in his writing he would have thought about there are constraints right now or even if he'd written a version of it that then had to get Yeah. adapted in the pandemic, you know. Um it's that which you see a lot of a lot of the stuff that was produced over lockdown you know there are cuts made there are certain things you know that i've made a few doctor who references the doctor who flux yeah you know the yeah. whole structure of that was purely based on the fact that if one of the main actors got covid they could just like go on a completely different schedule and just shoot other scenes instead yeah like which is insane yeah and so the fact that it's even something that makes sense narratively is impressive yeah <laughs> like it's, yeah um, um it so, is yeah. it, it is it is really really nicely done but you can kind of yeah the film doesn't feel compromised by those constraints it feels like it's the film that they wanted it to be that that ryan johnson and and his and his collaborators wanted it to be you know which is great yeah not for you but for me <laughs> Um, I, can, I can appreciate why people like this film. Yes, just, yeah, it just leaves you cold. It's not, it's I can absolutely see that. Which is well. almost more annoying. Yeah, so um, so Lionel just asks, you know, how big how big a staff does it take to run this place or a place like this? And it's pretty clear from his body language and his, like, you know, kind of sighing while he does it that he's really just wants Miles to, to stop talking in that moment. And I don't know if he's worried that he that Miles will just talk too long uh, and and reveal something that that Lionel isn't comfortable with, or if he's like just just like oh man, I could I I, I listen to enough of this stuff at work, you know, where he's talking about all his all his uh, achievements and his yeah the reclamation of everything he's achieved. The culmination is the word he's looking for. That was the word I was looking for. Some of these, some of these um, missteps in his um, in his language. I'm like, what 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 would the correct word even be? Um, but culmination just came to me there. But um, but yeah. So I think we'll um, wrap up minute twenty three there. And um, are there any questions that we haven't covered? Or oh yeah, Wednesday question. Yeah. So the. Um, the Benoit Blanc uh, three, you know, the Benoit Blanc mystery part three, is is like already contracted. I think he's, I think um, 
Netflix put um, Ryan Johnson on a contract for three of these or maybe more. Um, so he's like definitely committed. Um, have you heard anything about the next one? And if not, what are your what are your hopes for the next one? Uh, was I would have loved to have seen the original cast, the first Knives Out, do a different film, but in a sort of fish called Wanda, fierce creatures. Kind I of way get you. Of yeah, just yeah, yeah. completely playing different characters, completely different setting. But I just love, I loved that ensemble, and I, I haven't seen a film do that in a while. You know, like I don't know what the Carry On troupe kind of vibe. Oh, like I just, um, yeah, I know that's <laughs> a all, really poor of example. All of the, but like, <laughs> of all just, of the ensemble cast you could have named, but I don't but think, I get you. I don't like, think there's been many, yeah, like troupe ensembles that yeah. just do another film where, like, you know, maybe. Daniel Craig takes a sidestep and like Jamie Lee Curtis was the lead. Yeah. Like it, yeah. it just doesn't, I, I, I would have loved to see that. It, that was a really interesting example actually, because I just talked about a fish called Wander and Fierce Creatures. There you go. But Perfect. like, yeah, it's, um, but it's, yeah, I, I, I've just, I've wanted that for a long, long time. And so I would have liked something like that. Something where the whole cast, the whole creative team just went and did. Something yeah. Else. And if you did that, but if you did that, you couldn't really have Daniel Craig, playing the same character while everybody else plays different characters no oh no absolutely yeah. i think i think he would have to play a different character as well yeah. and i you know it probably have to be the same genre but yeah. or a similar sort of idea but also like i wouldn't mind i don't know i've just i, 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 I think, think it was yeah i think strong ensemble i think the troop thing um, is going to be hard to kind of ever do again with like scheduling you know what i mean and yeah. um and the uh yeah, I, I don't know. Like, you could get a few of those same people back and do something again and mix it up a bit with adding other people and stuff, you know. But it's just, yeah, I, I could imagine. I can't imagine being able to assemble, like, Ana de Armas and, like, Michael Shannon and, you know, all of these people who are not even necessarily that, like, Michael Shannon is working so much or whatever, but just, like all of those schedules aligning at once again you know what i mean i just yeah yeah I, I, but like yeah but like to the same sort of degree obviously yeah they've just kept daniel craig but if they wanted to you know if they had the power to make a sequel where they're all playing the same characters it wouldn't take anything more for them to play some i don't know i maybe not even just within knives out i just want to see movies do that uh I, it's just a weird <laughs> a weird thing that i feel no has, i definitely i get the, i get the appeal of the kind of troop thing and I, I i think the closest we get these days is maybe not even these days like but certainly like in in kind of recent decades it'd be like corn brothers for example work with a lot of the same people each time yeah, and they yeah. kind of and have a troop but there's a lot of rolling there's a lot of people in and out pt anderson absolutely had a troop up to and including my uh up to and including punch drunk love but then went a very different direction for um, There Will Be Blood and, and really barely ever worked with, with the, the same people. Again, you know, the, some of the people he had worked yeah, with before yeah. would well, come up like, in roles now and again, but it, it, like his first three films have like substantially the same cast, you know? Yeah, well, even like I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Inside Number Nine. Oh, great. And like yeah. Half, half of the appeal of that is like, who are Reese and Steve this Definitely. week? Definitely. And yeah. like, I love that. It just it, it fascinates me and uh I yeah. just I'm no I can I can <laughs> I can see the appeal um but uh, yeah but let's but but for for my hope for the next one uh and I haven't really read up much um but I did immediately 
when when the the first night I watched Glass Onion, I immediately started kind of going over in my head what would I do next with this character and 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 this world, and I um I started thinking this thought that I got very excited about, but then. I think it's just like what everybody else is saying online and what previous guests of this podcast have been talking about as well. So I, I don't think I was quite as original in my ideas as I thought. But but like I just had this idea for the structure of what I would love a third um, Benoit Blanc mystery to be, which would be that, you know, that it's like a prequel to an extent, like a, a, a like um. Godfather 2 like half prequel half sequel kind of thing so there's so translating that to my language uh, Mamma Mia here we go again Mamma Mia um, here we go again exactly yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah exactly like that and you re- and like Mamma Mia here we go again you recast you don't recast you you co-cast you 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 cast somebody as the young version of Daniel Craig in this case to Meryl Streep in, in the other case and and you have it that it's um i've i've seen both mamma mia films by the way too, which is which is kind of embarrassing to admit when I, when I, there's so many amazing films that i've admit that i haven't seen but um but uh what was it the yeah the the you you cast some actor as a young daniel craig but then daniel craig is still in it that's the the appeal for me it's like you get a prequel when he's much younger i don't want it to be an origin story just an early adventure of this guy and maybe it's some origin elements as in some elements that kind of formed the person he would become but not not heavy-handed not like how han solo got his whip kind of stuff you know um uh it's just 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 the light stuff you know and the, and the kind of soft character stuff rather than like distinct information that this led to yeah this. and then let's be honest you know if that became a success it would be way easier to make a full-blown prequel without it feeling jarring as well like yeah if they, yeah if you, you know if, if, if you... they made a Mamma mia 3 following lily james no one would complain oh you could like even, it would be you could even split it you could even do you could continue both timelines like do do a film yeah as to yeah yeah, yeah. do like do a, a film an, another early Benoit Blanc adventure with whoever the younger actor is and another uh, and then another Daniel Craig one you know um but cuz that could that could be fun but just the the point would be that you know we start with Daniel Craig we start with Benoit and he picks up a new um case and it has some uh, some mysterious link to one of his first cases so we keep flashing back and we the audience um, are intercutting we the audience don't know how this flashback one works out but of course Benoit does remember but the original case keeps informing this current case in surprising ways and we add twists and we add the revelations that way and yes, then yes. you have this structure where the audience is essentially watching two murder mysteries that have these surprising links and they pay off and we intercut between them. And I can just imagine Ryan, uh, Ryan Johnson pulling that off beautifully. And um, like I say, I, everybody's kind of talking about prequel or an early adventure of his or whatever. So it's not that original. But the, the idea, once I hit on that idea of the like intercutting it was like 
oh, how do I pitch this to Ryan Johnson? I need to. Yeah, I so need who, to do who, this. Who would you? Who would you cast yeah. as a young? That's what I was going to ask you. I just cannot. I can't think of of who. Like Joseph Gordon-Levitt is who I think of because he's just yeah. worked with um, Ryan Johnson so many times. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I never would have thought would have been a good match for Bruce Willis, but. In Looper, apart from his weird eyebrows, which were distracting, he was an amazing match for uh, a young Bruce Willis, and he he got his mannerisms down beautifully, and it was it was great. Mm. Well, maybe may, it, the first person to get in my mind, probably because I was talking about, oh, well, here we go again. Um, Hugh Skinner, who um, who was he? Mamma Mia. He was young. Whichever one Colin Firth is, young Harry. Yeah. Uh, but he was also, I think he was in Fleabag and a couple of other bits. Okay. His name is. He's not like a big name, but I could see him pulling off. Great. Yeah. I think the uh, the the issue you would find is um, Benoit Blanc's accent is unique and um, perhaps not entirely perfectly uh, authentic. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, were you to cast an American actor, for example, yeah. to play that part? I don't. Th- I think you have to go with someone British to to have to do get a similar the, the accent wrong in the than, same way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I um, think he could do. I, I think if if he if he captured the character in some other way, uh, and I think if if his accent was a bit more spot on, which and most Americans can't do that accent either because most Americans don't. You know what I mean. Um, because it's still that's still a pretty obscure kind of that bayou accent, you know, or, um, yeah. is is not uh, is not really you know commonly mastered by American actors, I don't think. So, no. but but I think if you if the character was captured in other ways, it wouldn't matter if the if the accent was a little bit different, just as long as it's in the same ballpark. And we can suspend our disbelief and say his accent changed over the years, as accents do, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's true. And it is... You do kind of suspend your disbelief with, with a certain kind of... I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. I'm willing to be taken on this this journey. You know, it's... I remember watching a, a very long YouTube video. I think it was JXC who did it, uh, kind of talking about uh, plot holes and, like... Sometimes they don't matter. Sometimes. Absolutely, yeah. Okie doke. So I think we're going to um, wrap it up there once again. Um, you got a uh, third plug for me? Um, Christmas Actually uh, was a podcast I did where we did uh, Christmas Actually, which was Love Actually day by day. Just if it were Christmas, just pretend it's Christmas. And um, we, we, we took each. Yeah, each kind of in-universe day of Love Actually, all the scenes that took place on Christmas Eve, that episode was released on Christmas Eve, you know, talking about Fantastic. that. And that was uh, that was kind of a good good fun show, a light 14 episodes um, to get through, and uh, a lot of fun. Great. Um, so what about social media connections for yourself? Um, and for me, yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at AskLukeAllen or at AskSeatKnock.co.uk. That's great. And for this show... The Twitter handle is at glass onion min all one word, and uh, yeah. So please do rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on the podcatcher of your choice. So until tomorrow, we'll say goodbye. See you next time on the next Glass Onion Minute. <laughs>